Welcome to the Habits and Hustle podcast, a podcast that uncovers the rituals, unspoken habits, and mindsets of extraordinary people. A podcast powered by Habit Nest. Now here's your host, Jennifer Cohen. I don't even know where to start. I guess we could start at the beginning. I was thinking there are so many, like in each chapter, you kind of have so many really good points that I was like, that's that's so true. That's so true. So I don't know if I wanted to go... And I never have done this before, but chapter through chapter. But basically, overall, I love how you kind of make us question our own assumptions and our mm-hmm. own ideologies, right? Because we get so stuck in in our own ideologies and, and ideas of what we've done in the past. And then right. we take those into what we do in the in the in the future uh so like let's even start with like chat you know even in chapter one you talk about how humans are act are actually programmed to fear uncertainty mm-hmm. which i totally agree with and how anomalies are an important driver for success right. so let's start with that so sure. start with why you re- wrote the book your background um and then answer my first question sure so i served <laughs> on the Mars Exploration Rovers Project, which sent two rovers to Mars in 2003. Their names were Spirit and Opportunity. Uh, We had built them to last for 90 days. And and I still get goosebumps when I say this, but Opportunity, one of the two rovers, ended up rowing for over 15 years into its expected 90-day lifetime. So it ended up being one of the most successful interplanetary missions of all time. And then I did a major 180, which people always ask me about. I left rocket science, went into to law. I went to law school, became a practicing attorney, and then became a law professor after that, and then pivoted again to write and speak to general audiences. But one of the things I did was I took these concepts, these frameworks, decision-making skills, critical thinking skills from rocket science, and started applying them to vastly different fields, like law, like academia, like business. And, and I noticed there's a huge gap between what rocket scientists have figured out in terms of how to make decisions under uncertainty, how to tackle complex problems when the clock is ticking, that the rest of the world just simply doesn't know. Because we tend to put rocket scientists into their own corner, right? We, you know, yes. It's not rocket science or it is rocket science. <laughs> so I wanted to write a book, not about the science behind rocket science, but about simple strategies that anybody can use to be able to make giant leaps in, in work and life. And so that blossomed into the book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. So the chapter you mentioned, which is flying in the, in the face of uncertainty, ended up being particularly relevant, even though I wrote the book far before the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Right. Um, but that first chapter certainly is very relevant to, to everybody right now. Um, and so going to your question about fearing uncertainty. Uh, as you said, there was a genetical component to this. I think if our ancestors did not fear the unknown, they became food for a saber-toothed tiger. You know, the unknown right. could present danger to us, whereas what you knew was familiar. And so the, the ancestors who survived long enough to pass their genes onto us were those who were afraid of the unknown and were afraid of the uncertain. So you take that genetic conditioning and then you build in layers and layers of educational conditioning on top of it that gives us really false impression that life is a series of of right answers. And that right answer is delivered to you by this authority figure that steps up before the classroom and just gives you knowledge for you to absorb, for you to memorize, 
for nice. you to then like spit out on an on a standardized test wildly disconnected from how the how the real world operates and by the way the education system doesn't let you see the messy re reality behind the glamour like you see right. newton's laws as if they just arrived by like a grand divine visitation you don't see the years that newton spent tweaking them revising them his failed experiments none of them makes the cut so then you get this false impression that life is a series of right answers. So then we, we bring that into our adult lives and that's why people look for life hacks and shortcuts and, and you know guaranteed formulas for making however much money a month. Um, but that's not how life works. I mean, all breakthroughs happen in uncertain conditions. If you look at scientific history, they all happen when a scientist embraces chaos, embraces uncertainty, uh, sits with a problem for a while, and then a breakthrough happens. Like the discovery of penicillin, x-ray, uh, oxygen, um, all of that happened when scientists embraced rather than rejected uncertainty. And this is that's the same for businesses and people too. I think particularly in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was such a grasp for certainty in the business world. Uh, if you like think back to March and April of 2020, when you must have received numerous emails from businesses, like from your insurance company and from your bank, they were all basically saying the same thing, like special <laughs> message from our CEO about COVID-19 and repeating cliche phrases like dear valued customer. Um, and it happens because in particularly in uncertain conditions, we tend to assume that other people know something that we don't. Right. So we end up copying and pasting them. So life then becomes a race to the center. Like everybody's doing the same things. Everybody is using each other's tactics, but the, the people who stand out, the businesses who stand out tend to be the ones that explore the edges. They are not rushing to the center. They're reasoning from first principles. They're not copying other people's tactics just instinctively. They're actually questioning them and asking like, okay, well, this business is using this marketing tactic, but is it the best way of, of Im implementing our overall vision? And it's incredible the number of businesses and the number of people who don't ask those questions. Well, yeah, I think like you said, it's very much part of our innate nature. It's our human yeah. nature to be comfortable and, and feel safe. So it's right. so how does someone take what they're kind of psychologically and and programmed to do and shift that mindset? I think there are a number of things you can do, uh, which I talk about in the book. Number one being just realizing that if you look at any business achievement, any scientific achievement, it happens when the scientist or the business person embraces rather than rejects uncertainty. So just mm -hmm. beginning with that standpoint that uncertainty is actually a friend. And then asking yourself a series of questions and a series of frameworks that you can use. Number one, is this a one-way door decision or is it a two-way door decision? That's something I ask myself mm -hmm. on a regular basis. Uh, so one-way door decisions, meaning if you open the door and you walk into this room that you haven't been in before, these uncertain conditions, and you don't like what you see, you're stuck. You can't walk back out. Whereas two-way doors are, are the opposite of that. You can walk in and take a look what, at, at what the room uh, shows you. And if you don't like what you see, you can walk back out. Most of the time, we assume that our decisions are the irreversible one-way door, right. which is why people just sort of tend to, to not do anything. They just stick with the status quo. 
But if you look closely, a lot of our decisions are, are two-way doors. Um, so I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was practicing law, I was interested in, in leaving the practice of law and entering the teaching of law. And I agonized over this decision for, for months. <laughs> I made like every pro and colonist imaginable, talked to numerous people. Research is important, but in hindsight, I could have decided far faster than I did because that was a two-way door decision. I was approaching it as if it was a one-way door, like I would leave the practice of law and I could never come back. And that was that was a false assumption. I could always go back. I still had my bar license. Um, so that's, a yeah. framework, that's really helpful to me. No, no, I was going to say, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say, I, I, I like that you said that in the book. It kind of like kind of made me pause because you did say like most decisions are reversible, not everything, but right. you can. And people think that once you make that decision, you're stuck there yep. forever. Um, and I and I and I agree because and then we get into this analysis paralysis. We think so long right. sometimes and we're just we, we we can't move one one direction or another or we go on default. We take the thing that's most comfortable and we acquiesce to what's in front of us because it's safe and comfortable and we don't even give ourselves the option or the opportunity to see what's next. Um, and so like just but you, when you said that in the book, I, I it really like I said, it resonated a lot. Um, so what is, let's go into first principle thinking. Sure. Let's do that. Let's go with that. Okay. Explain it. Yeah. So I'll, let me explain it with a story. I opened that yes. chapter by telling the story of Elon Musk and SpaceX. Yes. So when Elon Musk, he's, he was one of the co-founders of PayPal and he sold PayPal yes. to eBay and walked away with a bunch of money. And he's, his moonshot was to send people to Mars one day. And so he started shopping for rockets. He first looked on the American market. Those were way too expensive. He then went to Russia and he shopped for, I kid you not, decommissioned intercontinental ballistic missiles that he could repurpose as rockets. And even those were too expensive. And on one of his um, shopping trips from Rush, Russia empty-handed, he had an epiphany. And he, he realized that he, he was doing basically what we were talking about before. He was copying what other people were doing. And in shopping for used rockets that other people had built, he realized that he was not reasoning from, from first principles. So reasoning from first principles is a way of letting go of everything except for what is essential. So you are hacking through whatever you know, system you've got in place hacking through all of the assumptions as if you're like hacking through a, a jungle with a machete to get at the fundamental non-negotiable components. And then you build the system back up from there. So for Elon, reasoning from first principles meant, wait a minute, like what does it take to actually put a rocket into orbit? Um, if you look at the raw materials of a rocket, uh, the, the non-negotiable subcomponents, it turns out that buying those raw materials yourself and building the rocket from scratch, it would be like 2% of the typical price of a used rocket. So that's what he ended up doing. He, he right. now assembling these rockets at SpaceX's factories. <laughs> um, another assumption that he questioned was reusability. For, for decades, rockets couldn't be reused. So they would burn up in the atmosphere or plunge into the ocean after they delivered their cargo, requiring an entirely new rocket to be rebuilt. Now imagine for a moment doing that for commercial flights. Like I'm in Portland right now, I fly to New York City, the passengers deplane, and then somebody steps up to the plane and just torches it, lights it on fire. Right, it was crazy, but what we crazy. did with rockets for decades, and and a, you know the price of a modern rocket is about the same as a Boeing seven thirty seven, and so that's one of the assumptions that 
that SpaceX ended up questioning. And because of that, I mean, the, the cost of space flight had, has been cut drastically by a factor of 40, all because SpaceX was willing to look at the, the outdated assumptions in the aerospace industry and just put a question mark at the end of them. Um, well, yeah, he's also, you use him as an example for obvious reasons in the book a, a bunch of times, right? So, but not everyone, that's why he's Elon Musk and most yeah. everyone else is not, right? Because he would revert, he would basically reverse engineer that in his head to think about that, right? Right. Most people, again, can't do that. But um, like most of this stuff, what I like about it is, there's a lot of things that people we know, we just have to be reminded that we can be that way too. Yeah. We can think that way in a, on a smaller scale, right? By the way, are you friends with Elon because you both are in the same rocket science type of... No, not, not friends. No? Actually. Okay. But hopefully one of these days our, our paths will cross. Um, oh, you haven't met him? No, no, I haven't met him. Um, but, you, but you're right in the sense that... So we look, people look at a figure like Elon Musk and say, well... I can't do what he did, right? Uh, you can actually. I mean, you don't need to be sending rockets to Mars, but on your day-to-day -day life, it's as simple as asking yourself, do I own my assumptions or do my assumptions own me? Take one thing that you're doing on a daily basis. This could be a routine, a habit, like something you're doing simply because you've done it before or simply because other people around you are doing it. Um, and Exercise. You know, what's that? Let's say ex working out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It could be working out. It could be the Doing way the same that thing. you work out. You know, it could be the, the way that like the way you work out, for example, is you get on the treadmill and you run for a half hour every day. Yeah. Because that's what you've always done, right? Exactly. That, Autopilot. That that's, the, that's the best way to train. Probably not. Maybe, maybe not. But, it, but, it, but it, it's, it's when you get into the habit of questioning those assumptions, it's like a muscle, basically, to use another workout analogy. The more you flex the questioning of the assumptions muscle, the stronger it gets. And once you like, it can be as simple. We just moved. It can be as simple as picking up like where you certain where you normally put your like coffee mugs or your water glasses and questioning why they're there. Usually yeah. they're there because when you moved into the house, that's where you put them. And then even though they that may not be the optimal placement, they remain there just because it's the status quo. Uh, and the people who get ahead in life tend to be the ones who question those assumptions on a regular basis and ask, is there a better way? Absolutely. You said actually a couple of things. First of all, you should all, if you, if you think of something and what is it here? It says, when you ask yourself why you're doing this and you come up with more than one answer, it usually means you're trying to convince yourself, yeah. first of all, which I thought was very smart. Um, but you're right. Like we all do that. It's more like we're, we're, we're pre-programmed and on autopilot. You're right. So like, you know, I've been working out for so long that I get stuck in my own rut, right? Because I think I, you know, you wake up, you work, you go on the treadmill, you do the, and it's so hard to deviate from your regular routine, even though it probably is good for many reasons. It can like it's it can change the way your probably your neurons, you know. Mm -hmm function together or like you can get better. That's why people plateau is because they don't challenge themselves beyond, beyond that. But you talk about something called pain of independence, because mm -hmm. isn't that also when you kind of give lip service, you know, like right now what I'm doing, this is basically me doing pain of independence. I'm, I'm talking about the way I know that I should change something, 
But yet at the end of the day, I won't. I'll, I'll go right back to doing my treadmill and doing my squats with, you know, my 15 pound weights or whatever. Right. Like that's what we do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Whenever you are deviating from the status quo, whenever particularly deviating from the status quo in a way that's non-conformist, so you are leaving your tribe behind in some fashion, that causes a pain of, of independence because we are tribal creatures. You know, if you didn't conform centuries ago to or thousands of years ago to what the tribal chief told you, then you would be ostracized or worse, left for dead. Uh, so, no, there's certainly a pain of independence, but the universe denters, the people who leave a dent on the universe, tend to be the ones who move through that pain, just like in a workout, right? You know, you're, you're, you're suffering some pain in the process of lifting a weight, but your muscle is growing stronger as a result. And I think there's a counterpart to the pain of independence, which is the joy of independence, uh, which I don't expressly call that in the book, but I think... The, the output of, of the rocket scientists I cover in the book certainly illustrates the joy that comes from reimagining the status quo of hanging a question mark and conventional wisdom and finding a better path forward. Those tend to be the people that the successful ones are, tend to be the people that, that we talk about. And those are the people that leave a mark. I mean, so are you saying a couple of things that we should, so are you someone who doesn't like routine? Do you feel that routine restricts us, hinders us from um, basically growing and progressing? Not necessarily. Um, so a, a couple of things. One, I think I do think it's unhealthy to copy somebody else's like morning routine without questioning it, which I think a lot of people are doing. Like if I just use, you know, the same pencil that this famous author is using, or if I just adopt the same way to writing that this best-selling author has done, then I'm going to be able to get the same results. Um, I think that's false. And I think that's unhealthy because what worked for that author is yes. not going to work for you necessarily. And you're only seeing the success stories, by the way. So yeah. you're only seeing the authors who are following that routine and then achieving that amazing result. The people who are following that routine and are not achieving that result they're not, they're not going to make the news. So I think right. that, that, that's point number one. And point number two, I think for me at least, and again, I'm going to I'm gonna paraphrase this, not paraphrase, I preface it by saying, this is what I do. For me at least, it's more important what I don't do in the morning than it is what I do actually do. Uh, and what I don't do, this could be a non-routine or anti-routine, is like check social media, check email, any of those distractions that tend to clutter my head, I don't do in the morning. My mornings, this is the, the only routine I have, are reserved for meditation, journaling, and writing. I don't take any meetings, any phone calls before 11 a.m. My mornings are sacred to me. Now, the way that I approach the mornings can vary from time to time. I do think there is something healthy about varying up your routines because if you get too comfortable doing things a certain way, like if you're only accustomed to writing, for example, while, you know, standing before your stand-up desk, uh, drinking coffee, and you're listening to like algorithmically generated soothing music, and that's the only conditions under which you can write, then I think you are becoming susceptible to disruption. So to the extent that that routine is disrupted, you have to travel, you have to be on the road, now, all of those components that you've relied on so heavily to create the ideal writing environment are no longer there. 
Um, so I think it's useful to disrupt your routines from time to time too. So you can have routines, but I do think it's it's good to not get too complacent with them and just change them up every now and then, just like you would a workout routine. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger calls this like shocking the muscles. Yeah. Just, so, just so the muscles are not doing the same reps and sets every single time and getting complacent as, as a result, varying up your workout routine so that you're giving your muscles something unexpected. I think the same thing applies to your brain. I love how you're, we're using all these like fitness analogies here too, right? <laughs> yeah. Like maybe you should be a personal trainer in, in your next life, you know, <laughs> just like Arnold Schwarzenegger said. I mean, right. I, you never know, right? You see, you're, you're a jack of all trades. Um, no, I, I agree with that. Uh, it's hard though. It, you know, a lot of high performers are people who try to be really efficient, right? They put them. They, they create very stringent morning routines, night routines to kind of keep them on task. I'm one of those people, I guess you can say. And it's so hard to deviate, right? Because yeah. you know I've conditioned myself to believe that the more things like certain things you put on autopilot, it gives your space and brain room to think about other things. Sure. But right. But the but the counter to that is then you get so stuck in your ways, you can't see anything beyond that. And then you're, you're not pushing past that barrier. So, you know, that's why I really, like I said, I, you know, when I read this stuff, it like it resonates. And I think a lot of people get stuck in that stuff all the time. Right. And you, I mean, you were speaking about something again, I didn't even, I didn't know what these things were until I read your book, but you know, a lot of times because we can't see what's in front of us because we do it over and over again. Right. You talk about a couple things um, in the book. Uh, you talk about kill the company exercise and red teaming that companies like an Amazon would do to kind of because they are they know that you can only see what you see. You know, it's myopic view. Can you talk about what those two things are and um, who does it? and why it's important to do or why, or how do we take it on a more of a basic level people who are not Jeff Bezos let's say or whoever right. and apply it yeah so um and just so i'm clear on the question the first one was kill the company was the what's the second part you said this and you talked about the kill the company exercise red teaming oh red teaming um yeah. red teaming there's also i wanted to talk about it's all in the same Oh, no. Let's go with those two. I don't want to confuse you with too many at once. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how good your memory is. Yeah, for sure. So Kill the Company is... Uh, and I first heard about it being discussed in the context of Merck, the pharmaceutical company. But again, anybody can do this and I'll, I'll explain how. Um, and so uh, Kenneth Frazier, who is the CEO of Merck, he wanted to promote innovation at Merck like other CEOs. But most CEOs ask the cliche questions, right? Like, What's the next big thing? Or how do we think outside the box? And when you ask those questions that your employees have heard before, the answers that you get are by and large the same, or they tend to be like marginal improvements over the status quo. So one day, Kenneth Frazier asked his executives to do something they had never done before. He asked them to kill the company, to literally put Merck out of business. So the executives spent a day thinking through strategies. They played the role of one of Merck's top competitors, and they figured out ways to, to put Merck out of business. Um, and then they switched roles. They went back to being Merck executives, and they figured out ways to defend against those threats. And the exercise was, I think, really successful for two reasons. One, when you are 
being forced to, I mean, actually step outside the box and look at the box from the perspective of a competitor seeking to destroy it, you end up identifying weaknesses that you otherwise can't see because you're deploying new neural paths, pathways. You have an entirely different perspective on the issue than you had before if your CEO was simply asking you to think outside the box. And I think second, the second reason why it's successful is the urgency of change becomes clear. When you actually do have a list of threats to your company and those look relatively viable, you're like, oh my God, all right, we need to do something about these. And that's exactly what they did. They went back to being Merck executives and figured out ways to, to defend against those threats. It's very similar to red teaming, which comes out of the, the military. The military does the same thing. They have the blue team, the American soldiers, and the red team, the enemy. And then they, you know, one team will play the role of the enemy and figure out the, the weaknesses of the, of the blue team. So you can do this in your own daily life. Like you can ask yourself, why might buy my boss pass me up for a promotion? Or if you're applying for a job, why may I not get this job? Um, or if you're launching a new product in your company, why might this product fail? Um, and don't, you know, take those questions seriously. Don't treat them like that interview question you get, like what's, when people ask, what's your biggest weakness? Right. Oh, God. Bragging, right? Oh, I work too hard. <laughs> um, actually, be honest with yourself. Like why the, the people who are buying from your competitors, why are they making that choice? It's not because they're stupid. It's not because they're wrong and you're right. It's because they see something that you're not seeing. They believe something that you don't believe. They're telling themselves a different story. And you're not going to be able to see that story, let alone change it, if you're stuck in your own limited perspective. And a great way to jolt yourself out of that perspective is through the kill the company exercise. And then, so how do we, if, when we're, we're work, like my, I guess my my point before was also like sometimes you don't see what you don't see because you're so used to it. So with a kill the company exercise, red teaming. What do we do? Like, like bring it down to the most basic level. What does someone do um, to kind of see those blind spots yeah. when we don't have we don't have a consultant at you know Deloitte that we can hire or something else? You know, yeah. There are two things you can do. So number one is just adopt the perspective of your competitor. Adopt the perspective of your boss. Uh, and as I'm going to use another fitness analogy here. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> this is your new career. This I is know, exactly. Career. And this, <laughs> this is a muscle. I think we it's, it's so hard to see somebody else's truth. Um, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Uh, and I think adopting the perspective of your boss or adopting the perspective of your competitors and this could mean stepping into their shoes like actually using the product that your competitor sells uh if you work at adidas walk a mile in a pair of nikes and 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 ask yourself why are people buying these so adopting the perspective of somebody else it could be your customer it could be your boss it could be your competitor now even that is hard yeah go ahead john no no it's gonna say like you know you talk about in the book how invisible rules become even more difficult. Like those are habits and behaviors that kind of like are even harder to kind of change than right. anything else. And that's what I'm saying when you're, these things are so ingrained in, in us, I guess you would call them invisible rules. How do you, it's hard to change them, right? Like I know you don't have all the yeah. answers because you're not 
but and it's just continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was no, saying these no, are no, kind no. of like these. It is really hard. And by the way, questioning your assumptions, trying to see what's in your blind spot is one of the hardest things. It's really hard. Um, and it's really hard when you first begin. But like I said, take it step by step, qu question the small things, the small assumptions in your life. And I, I guarantee you, you will get better at it. Um, you can also get some help. And that, that help doesn't have to be in the form of Are you available? expensive consultant. <laughs> um, I'm available for keynote speeches, but that's about uh, it. <laughs> you can you, I guess you, you, can, don't, you don't have to hire me too. It can be as simple as asking someone. This could be your like spouse, your, um, your partner. It could be somebody from like a different team or a different division in your company who knows nothing about what you're working on bringing them into the conversation and letting them ask the, the quote-unquote dumb questions that are actually not dumb at all. Usually beginners ask the best questions because they are questioning things. They're outsiders. They are questioning things that go to some like fundamental aspect of what you're working on and they are seeing what you're, you're missing because they are not wedded to the status quo. They don't give a give a shit about conventional wisdom because they don't know what conventional wisdom is in your, right. in your field or industry. And that's why if you look at, you know, the gate crashers in, in our modern businesses, they tend to be outsiders to the industry that they ended up disrupting. So Elon Musk is an example of this. He picked up rocket science by reading the fundamentals of rocket propulsion right. in like Brazil somewhere. Jeff Bezos started Amazon after being in the finance world. Uh, Reed Hastings, the co-founder of Netflix, was a computer programmer before he saw all of these outdated assumptions that the video rental industry was operating under. Sarah Blakely, uh, who went from selling fax machines door to door to becoming the, the world's youngest self-made female billionaire after she started Spanx, they, are, they were all able to see what the industry insiders could not see. Uh, so bringing other people into the conversation, particularly people who don't know anything about what you're working on, can be one of the smartest things you can do because they will help you identify those assumptions and those blind spots. I think that's a great. I think that's a great point. I also think it's a good point to uh, just to continue with that. That people shouldn't limit themselves to what they think their experience is or what mm -hmm. they're what, what they know. Because a lot of times when you don't know anything and you are sometimes when you're too smart or you think you're you become your brain becomes complacent and you can't. That's when you really can't think about those things. But when you're a beginner, you know nothing. Everything is kind of like the world is your oyster. That's when you kind of see those things. And I, I, I say that to people who, you know, who really kind of do take things on that default and stay places where they know they don't want to be because that they're, they're, the fear component comes in for trying something right. new. But like to your point, a lot of those people who are the biggest successes of our, of our, of our time, right? Are people who were kind of just like they pivoted from something totally mm -hmm. different? Yeah, exactly. So I, yeah, and Sarah Blakely, you know, to go back to that example, she people ask her like, "What was your business plan when you started Spanx?" And she says, "I didn't have a business plan. Right? <laughs> I hadn't taken a I hadn't taken a single business class. I knew nothing about fashion. I knew nothing about retail. It's just she had this idea she believed in, and she said, I just." Basically, she went to first principles. And the first principles yeah. of, of a business are you have to make a product, you have to build awareness and excitement around it, and you have to sell it. That's it. 
those are the first principles of a business. And that's all she did. She built this product she believed in. She generated excitement and awareness around it. And she sold it. Rinse and repeat. That's it. That's the uh, secret. Uh, absolutely. Like, I think it's interesting because... And you talk about this in the book too. And again, I, I, I appreciate that. Is that sometimes the most obvious things are the almost, like, mo- most obvious answers are actually the answers. We try to overcomplicate things that are really not that complicated, but we don't trust ourselves to like just use that answer or the most uh, most simple answer is usually the correct one. Yeah, why, for sure. Why do we do, why do we always do that? I think it's partially because of this tendency to copy. Um, we look to what other people are doing and then they're doing all of this complicated stuff. They have this complicated sales funnel or they're using this software or this routine or this habit, and then we copy it with all the complexity attached to it. Um, and and I, I, I do think that's, that's part of it. The other part of it is we tend to accumulate things, habits, routines, systems, processes over time, mm-hmm. and we don't question them. So they build up and things get more complex, more complex, more complex, the bigger the business gets. Because no one's taking the time to actually say, do we need these processes? A lot of our processes were developed in response to problems that no longer exist. Mm-hmm. But the, the immune response remains long after the pathogen leaves. You adopt a way of doing something in response to yesterday's problem, and then you keep doing that even when the problem goes away. Um, so I think yeah. that also tends to, tends to build complexity. But as you said, Jen... The, sim- the simplest solution to a problem, all things being equal, is often the right one. And complex things just break more easily. Uh, when you have a complicated system, you're just introducing more points of failure to it. Whereas simple things, well, they're, they're simpler. They have fewer points of failure. And then they also help you allow that, that mindset of simplicity helps you get back to first principles, the fundamentals of actually what you're trying to build. Going back and asking yourself, why am I doing all this stuff? Like, what is the purpose of what I'm doing? Um, And then identifying the non-negotiables and going from there. I think that's a great way to to get to simplicity and and cut through some of the clutter uh, that you may have accumulated. More from our guest, but first a few words from our sponsor. The solutions to our country's biggest problems are closer than we think. And Believe in People by Charles Koch is a guidebook to uncovering them. It's a look into the transformations that happen in society when we transform ourselves. From former gang leaders turned peace brokers to amateur athletes discovering dynamic new ways to support Americans seeking sobriety. There's a reason best-selling author and stoic advocate Ryan Holiday call it a provocative book for the moment. The stories inside detail the habits, principles, and devotions of true changemakers. Believe in People is out right now. Order the book today at believeinpeoplebook.com slash habits and hustle. That's believeinpeoplebook.com slash habits and hustle. And now to our next sponsor. Dealing with stress is such a daily struggle. I've tried tons of different strategies to help manage it, like 
a million different meditation apps. I'm sure you're with me too, right? Those just have not worked for me. But one thing that has is something called Nucom. The Nucom system uses cutting edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items, all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. It's the only stress management system of its kind clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to help you sleep, reduce your stress, and re- and boost your recovery without any drugs or side effects. I've been using it four times a week, 20 minutes at a time, and it's really made a difference in my daily routine. Do what I did. Own the day with Newcom. We have a special link set up specifically to our listeners. Go to hustlenewcom.com. Dot com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of Newcom and their money-back guarantee. That's Hustle Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M dot com. Hustle, N-U-C-A-L-M dot com. I, I like how you said also how like when we don't know something we rely we're so used to relying on like google or a book mm-hmm. and that can that also can hinder us a lot of times for sure i think it we we all have experiences that we've had in our lives this like lifetime of knowledge that we accumulated yet we assume that the answer lies at the end of a well-formulated google search <laughs> you know instead of looking within and asking ourselves okay now that i I'm about to start a business and I know the the fundamental thing I need to do is to build this product, build awareness and then sell it. How do I actually do that? How would I approach that problem? Um, and so that way of thinking before you research is a great way of, of unearthing some of the wisdom that is actually within all of us. Like we are all walking repositories of, of epiphanies. But those tend to get cluttered because we rely so much on external search for answers instead of looking within for that wisdom. And again, a simple, two simple ways of doing this. One, think before you research. So before the next time you're about to research something, say how to build a marketing campaign, put the research aside for a moment and spend an hour brainstorming marketing strategies for yourself. Because if you don't do that, if you jump immediately into research, this is when the copying and pasting tends to happen. This is why the original insights within you become obscured because you anchor yourself to what other people have did. So then it becomes harder for you to see what they've done in a, in a different light. Research should come later. You can still delve into research, but think before you research. And then, and this is something I try to do as an author is to, to create more than I consume. Um, I read a lot. But sometimes, and I found myself doing this too, reading can be an excuse for not doing. Mm-hmm. Reading for me can be an excuse for not writing because I can always come up with reasons where, well, I'm an author. I should, you know, I should be up on you know, the latest business book. But if I create more than I consume, uh, that mindset puts me in a position to say, okay, well, I need to generate some original insights today. And how do I do that? Uh, and the best way for me to do, to do that is to get into this habit of creating more than I, more than I take in. I, no, I think that's so on, you're, you're so on the nose there because I feel we become, our brains become kind of lazy, not to use yeah. that whole analogy with fit, you know, muscles again, but you don't use your brain, you know, if you, if you stop using those, that, that muscle to 
think and work for you, it gets kind of lazy. And I think with Google and all these books and everything, it, it kind of like it, it kind of enables us to do that, right? Like we kind of we rely so heavily on all this Google it, like phone numbers. Do you remember the days when you remembered everybody's <laughs> phone number that you needed? Right? You knew yeah. your mom's number, you knew your your friend's number. And and then because we can store it all, now nobody knows a phone number. I don't know my husband's phone number. Yeah. I don't know my mom's, you know, but my mom's number I know. But besides my mom, can't tell you anybody's phone number. And I can I dial it at nauseum fifty thousand times a week. No clue. And I'm not I'm not alone because that's what happens. We just become lazy to the easy things that technology has kind of provided. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you can call that like. A tyranny of convenience of sorts. Like we are all, and I'm not about to give up using these services. Of course, I'm going to keep using them, <laughs> but we all become servants to them to some extent. Like, yeah, we forget each other's phone numbers. Uh, we don't bother memorizing them. We rely on, you know, like the suggestions from Netflix to determine what we're going to watch next. Yes. Like, you know, Tiger King pops up or you know, Indian matchmaking <laughs> pops up. And so instead of being deliberate and intentional about what we're consuming, we just, we were like, okay, well, everybody else seems to be watching this. So I'm going to watch it. Uh, or we rely on only on bestseller lists as opposed to looking for books that are going to nourish our souls. Like this is why before the pandemic, I spent so much time in indie bookstores. It's like you go and discover these books that are now out of print. Uh, that's like a used copy in a bookshelf somewhere. And there are profound insights in them, but no one's talking about them because they're not on a bestseller list somewhere. Um, oh my God, absolutely. Yeah. So there's, there's, I think, a lot of value to, yeah, still, of course, use those technologies, but ask yourself, do those technologies own you or do you own them? No, I think that's 100% right. And I, I, we can go on and on about that. That could be with music too. Mm -hmm. You know, you listen to what's, you know, on your Spotify, on the t you know, top 40, whatever. Right. All you end up knowing is what is what, what people, what these random algorithms suggest to you. So then you don't even have access to anything else. Like I remember I used to, I used to work uh, in marketing for a record labels years, you know, in a different life. And I knew all these, you know, kind of far out random music bands that none of my friends knew, but by the way, there was, that was the best music. It was the most amazing like bands. They were like cool, interesting. The lyrics were great. And you know, I'm out of that business. And, you know, I'm back to listening to Justin Bieber or whatever's on the, on the playlist. You know what I mean? Like, it's one of those things, you know, where it's like, if you don't put yourself in those situations and if you don't have, you become a slave or to someone else's, to the technology, that's what's kind of happened. Music and books, it happens all the time. And I think what your what what your book and everything else is like you kind of have to kind of remind yourself it'd be much more co like conscientious of that as something that's happening and search but again we get we get lazy we don't want to do yeah. that work right we go to like everything else that's convenient but you know now, now I'm thinking gosh I got to change my playlist so, you know because <laughs> <laughs> it's it's unbelievable it's like I'm listening to the same stuff well we haven't even gotten to I've got so much more for you. I'm, I hope you don't have to go anywhere because you, you you touched upon this in the beginning. But I want to talk about the thought experiment, uh, thought mm -hmm. experiments, and 
So let's talk about that and where they're, and also moon, there's so much stuff with you, moonshot thinking. There's, God, I, this is, keep, let's, let's go with thought experience. Does that help us kind of get out of that place? And what is that? Yeah. So a uh, thought experiment is basically this like imaginary scenario that you create in your head. Uh, like probably the, one of the most famous thought experiments is from Albert Einstein when he was 16 years old. He asked himself, what would it be like to ride next to a beam of light? Which sounds like a ridiculous question, but then he sat with that question for 10 years and its resolution, the answer to that, gave us a special theory of relativity. Um, and I'm so glad, by the way, that like no parent actually told Einstein, like, stop the crazy talk, go back to your room and do your homework. Like he was, he was allowed to, to daydream and, and to think and to come up with absurd scenarios and, and sit with them for a while. And that's something that we don't do in our lives. We're so busy uh, being an autopilot, moving from one email to the next, one notification to the next, one meeting to the next, without pausing, reflecting, deliberating, daydreaming. And getting bored, bored. Getting, you know, getting bored is so essential to creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, when you get bored, we, we tend to assume that like your brain shuts off. When you get bored, uh, it's actually quite the opposite. Um, when, you, when you get bored, when you allow yourself to daydream, the region of the brain called the default mode network lights up. And that's a region that's associated with creativity. Your mm -hmm. subconscious kicks in basically and begins drawing associations uh, between seemingly different things. Uh, it begins generating new insights. And by the way, this is why a lot of people have the best ideas when they walk into the shower. Right? They're mm -hmm. showering, they're in this distraction-free environment, they're just letting their, their brain drift, their mind drift. And all of these insights start bubbling up to the surface because it's like one of the rare periods of our day when we're not being attacked by notifications, uh, when, when you're not being disturbed and you're allowed to be with your thoughts and let your, let your mind drift. Now, imagine extending the power of the shower moments to other periods of your day um, to actually, and I call this airplane mode, but taking time to just sit on, I have a recliner in my office for 20 minutes a day doing nothing. I'll just sit there with a notepad and, and a paper um, and I'll just jot down whatever comes up. And a lot, 90% of the stuff that comes up is useless. But you often have to get that junk out of the way for the more useful insights to emerge. And some of the best ideas that have occurred to me in recent memory come in that environment where you're not being distracted. And unless you're intentional about this, by the way, you're not gonna be able to do it. Um, you have to set your phone aside. You have to create an environment that's actually free from distractions. There's so many examples I cite in the book of like scientists literally walking themselves into the right answer to a problem. Yeah. You know, they're stuck with something, they'll go on a walk somewhere and then the insight will come because they're giving their subconscious time to time to process those insights. Einstein would grab his violin and start playing the violin and in the middle of a song, he'd say, I've got it. Um, and so I think it's really important um, to, to carve off those time periods and to be intentional about them, to put them on your calendar as I do. So you have to show up like any other meeting. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a really good point as well. And, you know, I get all my, not to go back to the exercise, but I get a lot of my greatest ideas is yeah. when I'm 
running uh, because I let my mind drift. I'm bored. I want it to be over. And I'm just kind of thinking and doing... So like, you know, it could be the shower. It could be in your recliner. It could be when you're running. Sure. But giving yourself that time where you're like, you're letting your mind kind of wander, I think is so important in terms of all of these things that we're like even even talking about. Uh, is that how you got the idea to write this book as you were really bored and you were sitting in a recliner and you're like, hey, I'm going to write a book? You know, it was a series of things. So a lot of my blog posts, uh, what I write on a weekly basis on my blog, come from the recliner of like, I'll just sit there and jot ideas down and those eventually become articles. And then over time, I saw that the articles that I was writing about my rocket science background, the examples I used from rocket science, were resonating with the audience uh, quite strongly. You know, they would assume that rocket science was inaccessible to them, but then through those blog posts, they realized um, that a lot of those insights were applicable to their daily lives. So then, well, I started to think about that, and uh, often that sweet spot between what you're interested in and what the world is looking for and what the world is looking to pay you for the intersection between those two is where the sweet spot is and so yeah that's how the book the book idea came about well then how did you kind of like you have so many of these like like great uh tag like you know you there's so many of these i don't know what you even call them just uh sayings or like moonshot thinking yep. or uh, you know, you, 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 you pull like the outcomes razor, like whatever these things are, I've even talked about, you know, it, did you have, did you just know this because you're just, you read so much or did you have to do a ton of research to kind of put the actual name to what it really is? I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, so some of it, it just comes from my background, having been in, in rocket science, uh, and having studied astrophysics. And the other part of it, I find that something interesting happens when you, and this doesn't have to be a book, it could be anything. It could be like making a commitment to launch a podcast and record a podcast episode every week. It could be making a commitment to launch a business. It's, it's almost like you set up an antenna and you begin attracting all of these insights. Mm -hmm. So once I decided that I was going to write this book and I had a year to do it, then everything I was reading, I was evaluating through that lens. I was mm -hmm. asking myself, oh, could this be an example for this chapter in the book? Uh, you know, like I, I collected so many different examples. So I have like an example from uh, Steve Martin uh, and how he yeah. used principles thinking to change the, the stand-up comedy industry. And, and I didn't know that example before I started writing the book, but I was reading his book, Born Standing Up, which is a great book, by the way. And I came across this example. He didn't call it first principles thinking, but I was like, oh my God, this is a spot on example of somebody using first principles thinking to get to the fundamentals of comedy and abandon the assumption that all jokes had to have these cheesy punchlines, which is exactly what everybody else was doing when Steve Martin came around and completely changed the way that people do stand up comedy. Um, and I wanted to write a book where I collected very different examples from different fields to be able to say, it's not just Elon Musk and SpaceX who can use first principles thinking. Steve Martin does it too. Um, Alinea, the, the three-star Michelin restaurant in Chicago does it too. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, we were having dinner there. My wife and I got engaged mm -hmm. in Chicago. We were back there for a trip and we had dinner there to celebrate. 
and and everything that they were doing seemed to me like an example of first principles thinking. So then I and I may not have noticed that by the way if we had gone there before I started writing the book, but because it came after, it became potential material for it. So I think once you make a commitment to yourself to do something seriously, do something, then you end up attracting these insights because you're always on the lookout for them. Yeah, no, I think that's so true. I mean, I, that that goes with my life too. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. It's like, you know, once you, you know, you say something, whatever it is, you now, then you see it all the time. Once you make notice yeah. of it, then that's all you see, right? Then like, what is, um, like, let's, what is, who thought of monkey first strategy then? Was that? <laughs> that was Astra Teller at, uh, at Google X. They're now just called X. So Google X, for those who don't know, is uh, Google's notoriously secretive, they call themselves a moonshot factory. Uh, They don't innovate for Google. Their job is to create the next Google. And they've done everything from, you know, make balloons that provide internet internet service to glucose measuring, contact lenses, to self-driving cars, to autonomous drones, everything else you can think of. And they call themselves a moonshot factory. Now, they didn't invent the term moonshot. It goes back to President John F. Kennedy's speech in September 1962 when he stepped up to the podium at Rice University Stadium and pledged to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. Um, And that pledge at the time was quite literally a a moonshot because so much of what was required for a lunar landing just hadn't been done yet. You know, no astronaut had worked outside of a spacecraft, no American astronaut, two spacecraft had never docked together in space. NASA didn't know if the lunar surface was solid enough to support a lander, whether the communication system would work on the moon. Kennedy said some of the metals required to build the rockets hadn't even been invented. And less than seven years after that pledge, that promise, Neil Armstrong took his giant leap for mankind. Um, And just to put that accomplishment in context, a child who was six years old, when the Wright brothers took their first flight, which lasted like 10 seconds and moved about 100 feet, would have been 72 when flight became powerful enough to put a man on the moon. I mean, that is, that's 66 years from Wright brothers to Neil Armstrong. That's a dizzying speed. Mm -hmm, It was made possible because of moonshot thinking, because we dared to aim for the moon, but we did a number of other things as well. So moonshot thinking, is often associated with dreaming big, and that's not it, actually. Yeah, you have to dream big, but dreaming big is not enough. Like, you can't just sprinkle some pixie dust and magically, like, have your dreams take flight. It's really a, a combination of, of idealism and pragmatism. And pragmatism, to go back to your question, Jen, is where the monkey first tra- strategy comes in. So pragmatism in the context of moonshot thinking first begins with backcasting. So backcasting is the opposite of what we normally do, which is forecasting. Forecasting, we just look at our current budget, our current skill sets, whatever it is we're doing, and then we extrapolate that into the future. The problem with forecasting is it takes all of our problematic assumptions and biases that exist as part of the status quo and just projects them into the future. Backcasting does the opposite. So you begin with the ideal outcome. You begin with Neil Armstrong on the moon, or you begin with a successful book or a successful business, and then sketch out a really concrete roadmap for getting to that ideal reality. 
you sit down and list this out step by step. This is exactly what I need to do. And then the monkey first strategy says you have to start with the hardest thing first. And that comes from an example that Astra Teller, who is the head of head of Google X, gives. And he says, you know, the, uh, the anecdote is something like some uh, this guy is asked to um, have a monkey stand on a pedestal and recite lines from Shakespeare. That's your job. Now, most people, when they're given a task like that, they begin by building a pedestal because building the pedestal is the easy thing. Getting right. the monkey to talk is the hard part. And he said, right. you have to begin with the monkey first because you want to know whether your moonshot is doable. And if your moonshot is not doable, before you invest a bunch of time, energy, and, and money into it, do the hardest thing first so that if it's not doable, you know that as quickly as possible. So once you've created this roadmap through backcasting, look at the steps in front of you and begin with the hardest part. Yeah. No, I think that's, I, I like that because I, I agree with that. You're also talking about, um, I like the, I like all your little analogies, like the antelope or, and the, mm -hmm. or the, people normally go for the, for the mice right. and not the antelope. And I love that analogy too, because it's true. People go for the things that they think are what they think would be the most obvious thing. Uh, but well, you could talk about that. Do you want you talk sure. about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the analogy where like, if you're, if you're a lion, you have two options. You can, well, you have more than two options, but for, for the purpose <laughs> of this, let's just talk about two Yeah, options. I was going to say, well, if you're a lion, I don't know. A lot but, of options. Yeah. You can go after mice. So you can decide to hunt mice, but it turns out that the calories you need to hunt mice exceeds the calorie content of a, of a mouse itself. So it's, it just doesn't add up. Or you can go for antelopes. Now, antelopes are right. harder to capture, but once you capture as a lion, that's going to provide you like a week of food. Uh, most of us, as you said, Jen, go after the mice because the mice are a sure thing. Plus, everybody around us is also going after mice. The antelopes, on the other hand, they're a moonshot, right? They're a much harder bet. But the thing is, once you capture one antelope, that's going to provide you days and maybe weeks of food. Um, and I think we're conditioned, and I, and I criticize the education system a lot. I grew up in a very, I grew up in Turkey, I uh, lived there for 17 years, which was a really conformist education system. But, but I think education systems are conformist pretty much regardless of where you are. We are taught to believe that small dreams are wiser than moonshots, that flying lower is safer than flying higher, that, you know, that mice are better than antelopes. But as any pilot will tell you, um, if you're flying high and your engine quits, the possibilities in life, just like the possibilities in flight, tend to be more expansive because you can glide your plane to safety. But if you're flying low and your engine quits, then your options tend to be a lot more limited. Uh, this does need to be a balanced approach. You don't want to bet your company on a single moonshot because a lot of moonshots don't work. But the thing is, right. if, if you're if you're if you have a balanced portfolio of ideas and none of your bets are betting the company, then a single moonshot that works is going to pay off in spades for the ideas that don't work, especially if you apply the monkey first strategy and you quickly figure out whether something is workable. I also want to add that it's not, I know it's not the monkey first part of that analogy, but a lot of times when everyone's, you know, zig, zigging, you should zag, right? Because that's when the more opportunities are there. If everyone's doing the same thing, 
you're off. It's isn't it right? It's already saturated. Everyone's doing it. Your your chances of success are much higher if you're doing something that most people are not doing because no one's going. No one's looking over here. They're all going. No one's looking to the right if they're all going to the left. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Everybody's reaching for the low hanging fruit, and the center ends up being way too crowded. Uh, and my favorite example of that, which actually I don't think is in the book. It's from Johnny Cash. Uh, so Johnny Cash, before he was Johnny Cash, he was broke. His marriage was in ruins. He was like playing gospel songs at night with two of his buddies. And he got an audition at this, uh, I think it was Sun, Sun Record Labels. Um, and the, the scene, the, the, what happened in the audition is depicted in the movie Walk the Line, which if you haven't seen, um, it's a great movie. I like that movie. Yeah. So Johnny Cash walks into the audition room and he starts playing a gospel song because in 1954, which is when this happened, gospel is what everybody else was doing. And plus it's what Cash knew best because that's what he would play at night. And then the record label owner who's like, who's the head of the audition here, he's listening to, to Cash play this slow, dreary gospel song. And he interrupts him after 20 seconds and he says, Mr. Cash, we've already heard that song. Just like that, just like how you sang it. Now, give me something. Sing me a song that, you know, if this was your last moment on earth, would tell God what you felt like here on earth. The, the one song that people would remember you by. And Johnny Cash collects himself and he starts, you know, strumming his guitar and playing the False in Prison Blues. And he walks away with a record contract. And he goes from being Johnny Cash, the gospel singer, to, to becoming Johnny Cash, the legend. All because he dares to sing the false imprisoned blues when everybody else is singing the singing gospel. So I think if you look around us, life is filled with aspiring gospel singers. Mm-hmm. But it's the people who can emerge there or who can embrace their um, inner Johnny Cash. That's... That's when the magic happens. Yeah, I like that story. I, I agree. Um, and wh- why don't we just touch upon when we do kind of become Johnny Cash, not Johnny Cash, but a lot of times when we do reach some form of success, it, we do become very complacent with it, right? Yep. It's hard then. Again, this goes back to what we talked about in terms of if you're a high performer and you're very much a regimented routine person, um, but you are successful, you know, that does, that's why people don't change because they are doing okay with it. That comp- that they're, com- they're, they're complacent. It's working. How do we break away from that? Like what you, cause you, a big part of it, when you talk about this is that people do become very complacent when they are successful. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and if you, there are so many examples of this, you know, from business history, it's Kodak, it's Blockbuster, it's Borders, it's BlackBerry. Uh, from rocket science, it's the Challenger and Columbia disasters. You know, those. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I like that example because um, I remember that as a, a young kid. Uh, yeah. And you were talking about how that Challenger was mostly because of a cultural problem that it became such a disaster. Exactly. Um, so basically, to, to explain in simple terms, the technical flaw was what's called an O-ring, which is this flexible rubber band kind of thing that seals to protect the, the, the to, to, to prevent hot gases from escaping, basically. Um, 
And, and on the morning of Challenger's launch, the temperatures at Cape Canaveral were unusually cold. cold. They were below freezing. And a number of engineers raised their hands and said, you know, these O-rings, they, turn to, they tend to turn brittle in cold weather. And if they're brittle, then they're not going to be able to seal properly. But the managers overruled the engineers, went ahead with the launch, the O-rings failed, and with them, tragically, the entire shuttle. And I think, yeah, if you're older than six at the time and you're an American, or even if you're not an American, you're probably going to remember where you were. I was, I'm Canadian, time. by the way, and I, was, I remember it. So. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so why did that happen? So the, the, the commission charged with investigating the accident found this technical flaw. And yeah, that was a technical flaw. The O-rings failed. But why did the O-rings fail? What was the deeper cause of the, the accident? The deeper cause of the accident was this prevailing culture of conformity at NASA. And NASA, you know, for most people, is associated with creativity, with innovation. And yet this atmosphere of conformity had developed within the ranks of NASA. And it happened because NASA was really successful. I mean, it emerged out of the Apollo era, basically mm -hmm. assuming that amazing, wild success the Apollo era brought gave the impression to, to top-level managers at NASA that they could do no wrong. And a number of space shuttle missions, so the problem with the O-rings wasn't new. This was happening for years before Challenger. And the managers looked at that and said, well, look, all of these other missions succeeded despite some problems with the O-rings. Let's just go ahead and launch Challenger. Um, but just because you're in a hot streak doesn't mean you'll beat the house. Uh, eventually, luck will catch up to you. And that's exactly what happened. NASA had gotten lucky with those previous shuttle missions, mm. but they just said, look, we're going to follow process. We're going to do exactly what we did yesterday because what we did yesterday generated success. So if you follow the same process, the same plan, the same formula today, the same success is going to result. And that's a recipe for disaster. Whether you're in rocket science or you're in business, assuming that previous success guarantees your future is one of the most dangerous things you can do. Uh, and I think it's harder for most businesses to survive their success than to survive their failure for that reason. Because the moment we succeed is the moment we stop listening. The moment we succeed, the moment we declare ourselves to be an expert on something is the mm -hmm. moment we you know, start blaming other people when things go wrong. We stop doing that soul searching that you end up doing when you see yourself as a work in, in progress and not as a big success. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you look at you know, athletes, successful musicians, successful writers, they all tend to have that mindset of, I am a work in progress, regardless of how successful I am or regardless of what the rest of the world might think of me, I see myself as a work in progress, as a perpetual work in progress that's in continuous need of improvement. Um, and I think that mindset, coupled with some of the other disruption tactics that we talked about, like kill the company exercise, uh, like red teaming, like pre-mortems, I think those are helpful in terms of jolting you out of your current perspective and, and, and helping you see that the line between failure and success is far more blurry than, than you might otherwise imagine. That's kind of also similar to like, you should be testing as you fly, fly as you test yeah. and all that other stuff, right? Yeah. This was very interesting. I had a really nice time talking to yeah. you. 
Um, and why don't we, how do people like get more information if they want to read, if, if they want to follow you, know more about you besides the book? Um, they can buy the book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where else could they find some more information on you? Yeah, for sure. So um, the book is available wherever books are sold. And then the best way to keep in touch with me, I'm not active on social media, is through my email list. And you can sign up for that at weeklycontrarian.com. Um, and it shares just one big idea that you can read in three minutes or less. Readers call it the one email I look forward to every week. Um, yeah, and that's at weeklycontrarian.com. And I really enjoyed this conversation, Jen. Thank you so much for having me on. Habits and hustle, time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind, don't stop, keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out, hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries, tune in, you can get to know them. Be inspired, this is your moment. Excuses, we ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle podcast, powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.